I'm Richard Buskin. I'm Eric Taros. I'm Alan Cozen. I'm Craig Bartok. Beatles, naked. You don't know how lucky you are, boy. Back in the U.S., back in the U.S., back in the U.S.S.R. Well, the Ukraine girls really knocked me out. They leave the West behind. And Moscow girls make me sing and shout. That Georgia's always on my, 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 mind. Oh, come on! Okay, here we are, Paul McCartney's White Album, and we're kicking off with what is the opening track on the White Album back in the USSR. And I just want to say that people who are expecting me to be laying into Paul on this episode, you've got it all wrong, because on this show, we're in the 60s, I'm dealing with Beatle Paul. So... Not nearly as critical as when I'm dealing with his post-Beatles material. In this case, I really do love his work here. I love the variety of it. Um, much like John, just in a more gentle way in some places, I think he embraces all sorts of musical experiments and styles that he'll revisit later. Uh, as well as even more than John, I think, going way back to his roots with a song for me, like I Will, which a version of that could have 
fit onto Hard Day's Night. Um, I really, really love his work on this album, and I'm looking forward for us all having this panel of experts today. I'm looking forward uh, to hearing what everybody else has to say about it. Alan, what's your overview of Paul's White Album? Um, it's interesting listening to Eric uh, because I had thought I loved Paul's work on this album hearing the whole album. Um, separating out Paul's work, especially after having just recently separated out just John's work, um, I find it a little disappointing. It's, it, it's um, A lot of it is a little bit samey, and I know that that may seem strange given the variety of stuff he has on here, but it doesn't seem quite as broad as the variety of stuff John has, um, and there seems to be sort of a preponderance of acoustical things, although, you know, with one huge exception being Helter Skelter. Um, I think, you know, song by song, I think they're really great songs. I had a hard time making an album of it, though, you know, without... Interesting. Uh, yeah, without without some of the variety that that um, the others brought to it that make the White Album the White Album. Alan Cozen, McCartney hater. See, I told you it wasn't me. Oh, come on. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not. He's not hating. I, th- I understand yeah. what he's saying, but I once again, I'll keep hammering on this idea about how those songs were written and where they were written has a great, great effect on the White Album to me um, because they are acoustic-based because that's what they had sitting up there in the middle of the woods in uh, the foothills of the Himalayas. Yeah, and I have to say, I suppose for me, I also love Paul's White Album. The only thing is there's a sharper contrast for me than with John's collection in terms of from the twee to the edgy. You know, it's very eclectic without a doubt, but I think John's collection as a whole is more edgy than Paul's. Paul gets really edgy on some tracks and goes the other direction on others. Well, let's ask the musician what he thinks there. Craig, uh, what what are you chiming on all this bit? Well, I think I have a little different take on it. I I think here we have a band with two extremely talented artists being handed the keys to the kingdom, you know, and with that power comes a vulnerability as well as um, the confidence and brashness contained in that album. And I like to think of the White Album as being sort of John and Paul's most vulnerable work collectively. And um, interestingly enough, when John is vulnerable, he turns inward, he becomes introspective, angry, lethargic. Um, moody. And on the other side, with Paul, he pushes the envelope as far as creative styles goes. You know, he shows a real strong competitiveness with the contemporaries of the time. He wants to explore all aspects of music. And when he's like this, he tends to also write more deeply in the third person. It's sort of like saying, you know, um, this isn't my story, it's someone else's, so don't judge me, judge them. You know, Paul didn't really have the ability to draw from his pain like John did. And that's a good thing for us Beatle fans because it made the White Album what it is. It makes me think of the song, We Can Work It Out. Um, The White Album is sort of the logical successor to it. You know, you have Paul's verse and chorus where he has the strong melody and the need to please, you know, the hit formula. And um, then you have John's bridge, the minor key, introspective, painful, but yet complements Paul's sections perfectly. And with the White Album, we just have its logical conclusion to that. You know, you have Martha, my dear, in a sense, is the verse and the chorus, which is followed by I'm So Tired, which is the bridge. 
It's why I feel the White Album is her best work. I mean, where else can you get Martha, My Dear, followed by a song like I'm So Tired, Glass Onion, followed by Obla Dee, Obla Da. I mean, that's the brilliance of the Beatles collectively at their peak. And it's sort of like complete yin and yang in John and Paul. Do you feel that Paul's White Album works as well as John's White Album for you? Me personally, no. But um, it's it's also hard for me to to look at them in, in that sense. I mean, it's real would be really easy to say that Paul is a bit on the trite side or even phoning it in on this album when you look at it sort of through the lens I just described. It makes a little bit more sense. I mean, Paul, in a sense, he's being just as out there as John is with his songs. I mean, songs like Why Don't We Do It in the Road or Helter Skelter, that's Paul's way of throwing all caution to the wind and being vulnerable. It's also easy to compare Blackbird and Julia through that lens. I mean, John's being, uh, you know, John's being introspective and personal, and Paul's making a strong social commentary. And so it's, it's uh, you know, yeah, it's easy to say Paul's songs are more trite, but, but as the as you know, the the way it works, the way they work together, it's they're they're a perfect complement for each other. I wouldn't want to have either of them by themselves, at all, as an album. But this is you know we get back to that argument about whether it should have been a double album or not. This is the reason why it should have been a double album and should have stayed that way because I come keep coming back to a song like "We Can Work It Out," where you have those two diverse different sides. You know, I think um, it's interesting and it's easy to point out John's album being, you know, it's it's more edgy, it's got more emotion in it in many ways. I'd love to know what you guys think about the sequencing I have for a Paul's White album, because I think he's more of an entertainer in a sense. And you just brought up, Craig, Julia versus Blackbird. Uh, Julia is a more emotional song to me, but I'll take Blackbird nine out of ten times over it. I think it's a better song. And and I know that retrospectively it has become social commentary, but if you listen to the tape uh, from the Mary Hopkins session in November, uh, there's a very specific part in the dialogue between when Donovan and, and Paul are, are fooling around with potential material for Mary, and Donovan kind of asks them about the song, and, and Paul volunteers, well, I you know, spoke to Diana Ross about it and she was sort of offended. And, and he said, you know, I really didn't mean it as something like she's a black bird or they're a black bird. Or it, it seems like if it was social commentary, it was really subconscious. So mm-hmm. now nowadays he says, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's that one I wrote about, you know, the riots in 68. Yeah. I think it was it, I think it informed it. I think uh, I think Paul's album if it sequenced the right way is fascinating. And I'll I'll get to my sequence later. Uh, Alan. You know, on the John Lennon show, I asked you the question about John's evolution as a songwriter and where he was at by the time of the White Album. I asked you the same with regard to Paul. Hmm. You know, with John, it was a little clearer because he talked so much about his evolution as a songwriter. And so we know that he was, at least so far as he says, kind of not that interested in Sgt. Pepper, even though he did A Day in the Life and Mr. Kite and, you know, some some spectacular stuff. And on the White Album, suddenly there's this huge burst of creativity and uh, uh, and variety. With, with Paul, um, 
Paul never lost interest, you know, Paul, and never claimed to lose interest, even if he, you know, in John's case, it's hard to tell whether he really did or not, because some of the things he says are, are, are a stance, really, rather than what he actually was going through. But with Paul, um, you know, if you look at the things he did on Pepper and Revolver, the two albums immediately preceding this, you do see, in a way, a certain amount of um, soft edgedness and maybe you could also say sophistication in something like I will. Mm. Um, it's funny that, um, Craig and Eric both related, um, Blackbird to Julia. I, I think I will is more, um, sort of linked with Julia, at least in my mind. I mean, they're both love songs and, you know, Blackbird is something else. Um, and that's a good point. Yeah, but but I will is you know that's that's a, a kind of a, a beautiful song that you wouldn't have heard on Pepper, but you might have heard it uh, coming out of the same writing session of Here, There, and Everywhere. Mm. You know, um, I'd say even earlier. I, I mean, you if that was slightly different in the recording, it, it could have slotted on one of the really early records. Like I say, Hard Day's Night. Yeah. Now on Pepper. Uh, and and even to a degree in Revolver, I mean, in Here, There, and Everywhere, and uh, for no one, you know, he may be writing in the third person or he may be writing about something that happens in a relationship of his own. But here we have these kind of stories, the third person stories like Obla de Obla Da, Rocky Raccoon, um, and in a way, Martha, my dear. Uh, and by the way, we have three animal songs here. <laughs> yes, we did. I was going to say, what I mean, was it? And Alan, <laughs> you might be able to speak to this better than most. What was it about the Brits at that time? Like they were obsessed with dogs. You know, there was, right. there was uh, you know, the Who had several well, I, I records I defer to about Richard, dogs. really. I mean, <laughs> tell us, Richard. There's so many ways I could go with this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I will tell you this, guys. It's a good time for me to point this out. I, I love Martha, my dear, and I consider it in my top five all-time dog records, which I think is a good time to talk about. I mean, number one being Shannon by Henry Gross, mm -hmm. of course, written about Carl Wilson's deceased dog. I put Martha at number two. I put Mary Hopkins' recording of Nielsen's Puppy Song at number three. Old Ship by Elvis at number four. And, and rounding out the top five, the lovely I Love My Dog by Cat Stevens, and, and let's talk about how heavy it is for a guy named Cat singing about a dog. I'm just glad you haven't got me, you, and a dog named Boo. How, how about the shags <laughs> I like footprint? <laughs> no, that, I said top five. Top five. Well, uh. Talking about Paul, though, as a composer, for me, I always say that you know, as much as people say I'm a Leninista, you know, Paul McCartney, 1968, has anyone ever matched, let alone surpassed him as you know, in terms of the quality of material, the volume of quality material in Western popular music. I mean, has that ever been rivaled? No, I don't think so. You know, the thing is, is that we have to remember that Paul is a much more disciplined songwriter than John. Um, you know, Paul is a much more disciplined musician, and that comes out in his um, that comes out in his compositions. Uh, you know, like Martha, my dear, is a, also a great example of the way he plays piano.
like the way he played piano on Lady Madonna. Um, he wants to show that off, and he wants to show off his ability to write and to write in different genres and styles. Uh, John didn't really have a desire to do that. He just wanted to write and get his emotions out and get them out nice and quick and didn't want to spend a lot of time in the studio. So we, you know, very, very different approaches to every aspect of the the songwriting and the recording, which is ref really reflected on the White Album. And I think another thing about Paul's writing that's different than John's White Album, in a sense, is how many people could really cover John's stuff? I mean, it's like John sings that he, he used to mention this, that his material was pretty hard for other people to do, at least during his lifetime, because it was so distinctly his voice and his vision. And, you know, why would you do something like that? But you can hear many people recording I Will, in a sense, in your head or Blackbird or, um, you know, even Helter Skelter, in a sense, the people were dying to cover that. I think that... Uh, that to me is the mark of a sort of more universal. Maybe you would say this better, you know, Craig or, or Alan. A more universally accessible songwriter, professional songwriter type stuff. Whereas John is just this emotional artist guy. Especially by this point, I mean, earlier on when John was sort of channeling his inner Motown um, on the first few Beatle albums, John was, you know, he had more aspirations of being a professional songwriter along with Paul. And I don't think Paul ever lost that aspect of it. And and John did. I mean, John moved on. He said, I want to just express my feelings and who I am. And it could be a, a song with uh, one chord in it. And, and and Paul was just always pushing that envelope. Alan, what's your opinion on that? Um, I, I I agree basically with, with both Craig and Eric. Um, I think... These songs on the White Album are, you know, except for things like Oh Bloody, um, you know, and, 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 and maybe Rocky Raccoon, except for the storytelling ones, a lot of them are very reflective um, in a way that um, he isn't in several of the other Beatles albums and not to mention a lot of his own albums. I mean, there's just a very... Um, sort of laid back uh, thinking about things quality to these songs to to things like I will and even Martha my dear you know I mean since we we, we know he's writing it to his dog but if you didn't know that his dog was named Martha it could be it could be just sort of a courtly little uh, you know neoclassical song um, and it's, well it's been um, said also that it was about Jane Jane Asher huh? Could be. Hmm. <laughs> oh, dear me. In the words of Iggy, I want to be your dog. <laughs> so let, let's get into the actual tracks. And as I said, everyone will have their running order. But, you know, we start here with Back in the USSR, which for me is a kind of natural opener. It's a great rocker. The drums and piano, drums mainly by Paul, piano, Paul and George Martin, they really drive it along. We got that plain sound effect that weaves in and out all the way through. It's kind of comical. And then great guitar work by George and Paul. What do you guys think of that track? Well, I believe it's also John on bass, isn't it? Um, I've, I've read that it, John is playing bass. On yes, it's um, John and George are playing the uh, Fender right. six-string right, bass, right. which is basically for non-bass players. Well, you know, the song, it, it's exactly what the White Album needed. You know, when we did the um, when we did the John White Album, we were hard-pressed to find that opener song. You know, and John was good at that in the past. I mean, he didn't really have A Hard Day's Night, 1968, laying around at the time. 
you know, it's Paul's the one who had the fast, sort of semi-controversial sing-along song to start the album out. And it's really just, it's, it's a great way to, to set off the White Album. I mean, I suppose you could have started with Oh Bloody, Oh Blada. You could have started with Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey. But they're not quite as accessible. I mean, Oh Bloody, Oh Blada is a, I would consider it to be a novelty song. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey, I think would have been, have been problematic even for 1968 and the Beatles, to that, that title and for it to be the opening song for, for any album. Even though it's fast, even though it's up-tempo and it's got come on, come on and all that, it just, it just doesn't feel like an opener to me with, if you've got something like Back in the USSR laying around. Alan, what do you think of the track? Um, I, I really love the track. Um, I have it as the opening of my Paul's White album, but I did tussle with whether that should be the opener and Helter Skelter is my closer or vice versa. Because, you know, when you when you talk about not having a, a hard day's night lying around, I mean, the opening of Helter Skelter really does kind of catch your attention. Um, so it, it could be a great opening track in that way. And back in the USSR, in a way, could close it too. Um, I love the Beach Boys. Um, I think of it more as an homage than a parody. Uh, keep in mind when they did this they're just back from Rishikesh where they were hanging out with Mike Love and uh and and possibly some of the other Beach Boys were there other Beach Boys there certainly Mike Love in any case uh, no Mike Mike um, was there but uh I always thought of course all you need is love Mike Love very good <laughs> no yeah, that's all what you right, guys didn't yes. pick up on that wow I see you really haven't uh, had that coffee <laughs> yeah um but <laughs> also you know the lyrics are really clever there's all sorts of you know puns and things going on. I mean, George is always on my mind. I mean, there's the, uh, you know, the the Soviet state of Georgia versus the Ray Charles um, yeah. Georgia plus American Georgia. You know, it's, it's, uh, and there's, um, it, it's kind of in a way, it's in, in, you could say it's a parody of California girls in a way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, also, you know, the paper bag was on my knee. I mean, it, it's actually, I think as, as Paul's lyrics go, it's, it's one of the stronger ones all the way through. I agree. Do we miss Ringo's drumming? No, I, I, I have to be blunt. I don't think so. Craig? Oh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, Paul's drumming is obviously more sloppy and he's also lazier. Um, I think Ringo has a tighter, um, just a four, four uptempo beat. So, I mean, I, I can hear Paul's, uh, but the only place where Paul's struggling where Ringo wouldn't be is when we get to the fills, you know, like before I'm back in the USSR and a few yeah. of those other places. It's just a little, um, it's a little sloppy, but, but it's, it still has the energy. And uh, I think part of the energy comes from that, um, that bass, the bass sound. I've heard the isolated bass track and it's really interesting. It's almost... Um, it almost reminds me of Helter Skelter in that sense. It's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty rude-sounding bass guitar for that song, um, and it's great. It really adds to that energy. I should point out that Paul also played bass on the track, so it was actually three of them playing bass. <laughs> it wasn't just John and George, which um, is a potential <laughs> nightmare. I mean, it's a it's a nightmare to have two basses, but let alone three. It's like the Wall of Sound Orchestra, the the, the Beatle Bass Orchestra. Yeah, And John and George also contributed some drum parts. I know in John's case, I think it was a hi-hat part that plays all the way throughout, um, but it's mainly Paul. Yes. 
So second, I've got, wait for it, wild honey pie. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Paul quoted at the time, I think it was said that Patty, Patty Harrison really liked it and thought it's interesting and it should go on the White Album. And Paul was saying, nah, it's just this thing I've done, but everyone told me I should include it, which kind of uh, sets a precedent that would you know, get repeated <laughs> with projects such as Give My Regards to Broad Street and uh, the song Freedom, people telling him he should do this. I mean, what do you guys think of it? In the interest of full disclosure, if Patty Harrison told me to do anything, I would be doing it on the double. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I, my, it's interesting that you have it second, Richard, because after a delay of a few seconds, I have Wild Honey Pie as my closer, uh, as the afterthought after the heavy-duty Hey Jude, which we'll get to later. But it's so funny that we have them mm -hmm. inverted. Wow. You have it as this album's Her Majesty. Absolutely. <laughs> I could totally hear Wild Honey Pie is the second song. And um, yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of, it's the precursor to McCartney's first solo album in a sense. I mean, it's just like, here's a little thing I put together and it's cute and it's quirky and I'm just going to throw it on. It's just a little short little minute piece and that's it is what it is. Alan? Yeah, I put mine near the end um right after wild honey right after honey pie itself um sort of as if it's just sort of a weird coda of the same song um you know i i don't dislike wild honey pie it is only 53 seconds long yeah. and it's kind of funny and quirky and weird and certainly if we're separating out all of paul's stuff um you do need something a bit that bizarre um to sort of stand aside maybe separate two more similar tracks or something but um i i have nothing against it i have also not an awful lot to say on its behalf apart mm. from its brevity doesn't it indicate i mentioned this i think with john's white album that by 68 you know they're no longer trying to make it or trying to prove themselves to the world they've done that and so now they're into indulging themselves, which is fair enough. They've earned it. And for me, the inclusion of Wild Honey Pie is one of Paul's self-indulgences. Absolutely. Why did that one, I wonder, and maybe Alan can sh shed some light onto this better than the rest of us. Why did that one get singled out and a far superior Little Cup uh, link track like Can You Take Me Back didn't? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Can You Take Me Back is just sort of attached to what Revolution Number no. 9 and not, not given a separate uh, a separate track, a separate title on the album. It's, I don't know. That it, Maybe it was, um, maybe... Revolution 9 or Cry Baby Cry. Can You Take Me Back? Yeah. 
Can you take me back where I came from? Is that yeah, and then... At the end of Cry Baby Cry. See, I hear it as the beginning of Revolution 9. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's where it's really? going to be. That's going to be on your version then, Alan. <laughs> wow, Alan, I've, I've never heard anyone say that before. That's really interesting. Hmm. Well, because, you know, it then fades out and you hear George Martin and George Harrison talking and then the song begins. It's, it's, it's sort of like a bunch of link tracks yeah. in a way, you know, a couple of things. I always felt the same thing. I always felt like that was closer associated to Revolution 9. Wow. Yeah, it for me as a kid listening to it, um, I, yeah, I just, it, it felt like, okay, here's just this great little moment before Revolution 9, and just, it sets it up perfectly. And there's a remarkable amount of emotion and terror in his singing in that, if you think about it, especially where it's, take me back, you know, it's like, it's it's not, it's vaguely unsettling. Yes, it uh, is. Which does work well in the context. Your rendition definitely is unsettling. Richard, my rendition of anything is unsettling. <laughs> and that suits Revolution Number 9, too. Yeah, because um, it, it, it's almost like a sort of a wistful mm-hmm. little tune about, could we go back to before all of this happening? You know, And then you hear Revolution Number 9, you, it makes more sense. Uh, this sets me up perfectly, actually, for the next track in my playlist, which is Mother Nature's Son.
For me, this is Paul at his best. I, I think it's a majestic track. It's a, a thing of beauty. And I love George Martin's wonderfully well-suited, understated brass arrangement, which matches the understated lyrics in a way. You know, Paul is, he, he could have gone another way on this. It could have become very syrupy. I don't think it does. And I think the introduction of the brass and the increased ambience on Paul's voice it kind of transports us outdoors, doesn't it? There's like a clarity there. Well, I love the song, and it, it does have a lot of space to me in, in that song. I think I agree with you about the brass, Richard, that I was going to ask Craig in a minute about that funky last chord that the brass plays. But uh, there's some really neat things about the recording of that uh, that add to the spaciousness of it. I always remember the story. If you ever went into the old Abbey Road studios, um, when you, you when you went in the front door, you kind of went down this thin hallway, and then on your right was the stairwell that kind of went down a couple of flights, and you went downstairs to the basement to get into Studio Two. And the story I was told is that uh, uh, Paul did the the big bass drum sound by having the mics up there in the hallway where you first walk into Abbey Road, and he was right. down at the bottom of the stairwell, kind of playing along, which really does add to the sort of spacious feel to me of uh, and it's so understated and beautiful I, I really love that song I think it's maybe the most beautiful on the album um, for me yeah. and uh, the other thing that's interesting to me about it is it once again shows that dissonance between John and Paul that's the happy Maharishi song you know Maharishi's still a good guy in Mother Nature's Son as opposed to Sexy Sadie right and uh, by the way that last chord it's interesting because it's a it's a seventh and um, the song doesn't have a seventh chord, and it's all made. It's all major happy, and he, it's it's interesting that he sort of picks a blues chord to end on that for that last thing. But one interesting aspect that I think we should talk about is um, is Paul's voice. I mean, just think about it. In three more songs, he's going to be singing Helter Skelter on the album, which is would be the next song on the album. I mean, think of the difference between. Mother Nature's Son and Helter Skelter, as far as Paul's Paul's voice goes. I mean, okay, but John, by this point, he pretty much, I mean, he was, you know, doing these effects and all this. He had a delay on your blues. and, and But John's voice, he can sing soft or he can sing loud. But, but Paul, I mean, you think about, like, the, you know, the accent at the beginning of Rocky Raccoon. You think about how soft he is on Mother Nature's Son. You think about how crazy frantic he is on Helter Skelter. I mean, Paul's arsenal of vocal weapons on this album is is really staggering, and it really does set his songs apart from John's just from that aspect alone. I mean, Paul's voice on Mother Nature's Son is is really just it it's it's hypnotic. It just it's it's perfect. And um, you really can't say anything. There's there's no negativity about it whatsoever. And to me, that last note, Craig, is the killer. There's, there's such a clincher. It's such a weird decision, even to a non-musician's ears. Like, ooh, why? Well, what's going on? It's like oh, they turned this, the speed off or something, or they shut the recorder off. It just sort of has a slightly unsettling end to one of the prettiest songs that I can think that he's written. I was going to say it's interesting. You, while you're talking about that, one thing for the listener to to listen for with the guitar is there's a second guitar that comes in um, for the last verse where he starts humming, 
and it's um it's a um, an acoustic guitar i believe if you listen to headphones it's off on the right hand side and it's got the artificial double tracking quick delay on it and um, it's a really very cool part that he just puts in and it just it goes all the way through until mother nature's son at the very end um, and it's just comes in for that last probably uh, one-fifth of the song and it's a really interesting guitar tone and uh, it's really brilliantly played it's almost classical in the sense and you'd have a tendency of missing it if you didn't actually listen for it it's really really quite spectacular it's that seventh it's that note right there where else did they use sevenths when they ended songs they've done that before um well they used a major sixth on she loves you um that's what i'm thinking of the major sixth see that's why i flunked out a theory i did too so it's okay but do you think, Craig, that, you know, the decision to do that is just him just trying to throw in something different, which obviously works, but just doing it for that? Or is there something else motivating him? It's a great songwriting um, ending, because if he just would have went, um, I wasn't really planning on playing guitar, so please excuse the, the out-of-tuneness of it. It's a little, you know, it's a little trite. But it's uh, it's kind of it's 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 clever. It's a clever ending because it really he had to go back to the D to end on that song, and uh, and putting a flatted seventh in there is, is a pretty clever way to end it. Alan, yeah, pretty much agree. I may like it less than the rest of you. Um, it, it's not one of the tracks. I would go to if I were just going to play a couple of songs from the White Album, um, but listening to it again, you know, this this past week, it's it, it really is a nice song, and I think the brass arrangement um, kind of makes the difference between it being uh, just an okay song and uh, a really really good solid track. Uh, that plus, you know, the Paul's drum down the hallway as as you mentioned i mean that's it's got a lot of nice little effects like that um even the way the guitar sounds i mean it 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 sounds at times he gets that little buzz on the string um and and with a little bend makes it sound almost like a sitar for half a second you know yeah as i say i think my favorite part of the song is when the brass kind of just sort of fades in. It's very smooth the way it sort of creeps up on you. And then there's this reverb on Paul's voice and he sings, sit beside a mountain stream, see her waters rise. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's, as if, it's as if he's by that stream. I picture him there. He sounds like he's there. I agree. It's a very believable song. And I think that's the, you know, is it Paul's, one of Paul's better, best songs? No, but it's it's a very believable and a very honest song. And um, it's the production and Paul's playing really uh they match the lyrics in the song very, very well, and that's what really makes it work. Um, it's just he's he's really making a statement, and he's doing it. Like, you think about it. We're talking Mother Nature's Son. He's got an acoustic guitar. It's very woody-sounding. He's, he's staying away from anything electrical. He's, he's, he's got a brass section, and it's a very muted brass section. It almost sounds like French horns, so it's not really in your face like a, you know, 
like a um like 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 another Beatles song um any but it's just really smooth sounding and it sounds like it could be right out there in nature like you're saying Richard yeah so next up on my list why don't we do it in the road oh yeah letting it all hang out right and he's doing so in a way that he would try to emulate that kind of spirit later on post Beatles and for me often in less convincing fashion you know here we've got this cohesive cacophony of sound and I think his vocal performance just that on its own is pretty remarkable well, when I hear that one, you know, once again, the situation where it was recorded and the story I've always heard was that it was inspired by our little uh, monkey friends running around in the town of Rishikesh. And funny enough, I remember seeing just that sort of thing happen in Rishikesh last year. And that's the song that pops right into your head. You cannot escape the monkeys. They're more um, aggressive and in your face and following you around and looking for stuff in that town than any place else I was outside. The Taj Mahal, they'll follow you around a little bit too, but but in Rishikesh, they have very little fear of humans. So I, it's just, that's the picture in my head. So I, I have to laugh every time I hear that song. It doesn't seem very heavy at all. I always thought of horses, actually, not having been to Rishikesh, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I, I agree that Paul's vocal is the main thing here because it, it's it's actually not much of a song, you know. It's um, there's, the, but but the vocal is just incredible and it brings in a lot of Paul's old heroes in a way. I mean, you hear a little bit of Jerry Lee Lewis in there, you hear a little, little Richard in there, you uh, you know, and and it's also pure Paul. So um, just as a vocal performance, it's great. As as a song, it was just sort of funny, you know, like a little comic thing. Not surprising that it was John's favorite Paul song on the White <laughs> Album and that he was upset that he wasn't included in it. But he made he made fun of it constantly. I actually I prefer John's version of why don't we put it on the toast? Hmm. You know, from the you you know that one, Richard, from from the Let It Be sessions. Why don't you put it on the toast? 
It's uh, your basic one four five rock progression. Um, the one thing that always interested me uh, about that song is Paul's horribly out of tune electric guitar. Um, it's uh, there's a few times on Beatles records when they they've let things go that are pretty out of tune. Um, I I think of I'll Follow the Sun as being another example of it's like I wish I could get in my DeLorean and go back in time and give them a guitar tuner. Um, <laughs> But uh, but for some reason Paul's electric guitar on this song is is way out of tune and um, and I don't know why it's always bothered me but but I've always overlooked it because of Paul's uh, stellar vocal performance and I almost thought that he almost sounds like he's he's had a few drinks after you know for when he did this vocal performance he just sounds so loose and. Um, yeah, it's 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 a great vocal performance. Do you think his guitar might have been purposely out of tune? Well, I I don't know if anybody would really want to purposely have a guitar out of tune um, that badly. Um, I just think he probably just did this song, just went into the studio and just did it in a few minutes and knocked it out, and really didn't didn't care that much. And 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 I guess the cool thing is, is I get back to that vulnerability and brashness. It's like it's just a brash thing to do to like not have the guitar be perfectly in tune. I think he took it took longer for them to set the type on the album cover than it did for Paul to record the song. Yeah. So up next, a song we already referred to on my playlist, Martha, my dear. Martha, my dear, though I spend my days in conversation. I'm sort of juxtaposing, you know, the different styles. So we jump from Mother Nature's Son to Why Don't We Do It in the Road and now to Martha, My Dear, which, again, in future years, he would sort of return to this kind of musical territory, but maybe be a bit more schlocky about it. You know, here, I think he does strike the right balance, just about. And that this sort of dialogue with his old English sheepdog is pretty charming, but it's also interesting that you could hear it. He said it's probably about Jay Nasher, which is kind of strange for the songwriter to say. But dear me, you know, um, by the time of the recording, which I think was the fourth of October '68, they'd already split up. And you can listen to lines such as "When you find yourself in the thick of it, help yourself to a bit of what is all around you." 
That could have been a dig at her. I think it's a dig. I think that's his confessional. He was having a bit of what was all around him, wasn't he? <laughs> well, they all were. Once again, uh, to me, a song with a beautiful vocal. I don't know if Paul's singing, uh, when I reflect upon the Paul's White album, I don't know if his singing was ever as good again in many ways. I just think his singing is out of control, beautiful on on that song. And uh, it's. I prefer to think of it about his his uh, dog as opposed to his girlfriend. How terrible! <laughs> just you know, to, well, it, I'm going to disguise this. I'm not going to call it you know, sexy uh, whatever, sexy redhead or something. I'll I'll just call it Martha, my dear, after my dog. Maybe that says something about Paul and his relationships. But I just think it's a beautiful track. And 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 once again, I think John's material when we spoke about the last one could survive pretty well without any input from George Martin. I think Paul's songs were all enhanced by George's production and his ability, you know, his his subtle use of horn sections and things, with the exception, of course, of Good Night by, by uh, John uh, with that beautiful string arrangement. But I think Paul was working well with George, whereas I don't think jo- uh, John needed George Martin at all at that point very much. So that that stands out to me about the track. And like I say, it's in my top five all-time dog songs. I think it's, uh, like I said before, a little sort of like a little neoclassical song. I mean, the the intro to me sounds like it could be, you know, right out of a, a Haydn Allegro or something. And um, uh, he does, I think you're right, want to show off his piano playing because that's quite nice it's very focused it's got a nice bass line counterpoint and the vocal i think is just as focused in its way as the piano part and i think it's a it's a very tightly disciplined song and uh, the the subject matter i mean it's interesting i never i never heard the jane interpretation before um just thought it was about martha the sheepdog um, but you know, it could be about anything. I mean, the, the lyrics really could be about a person and, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's nicely written. The, I agree that George Martin arrangement, um, puts it, uh, over, just over the, the top. It, it, I think it needed something once you get past that incredible piano intro. Um, it, it, it needed a bit more variety. It couldn't have just been that, you know through the whole song but uh, yeah it's nice it's interesting that brass arrangement actually for me it's very reminiscent of late 60s early 70s UK I mean you've already got you know Paul's Family Way soundtrack right from 1967 Mm -hmm. which had a lot of brass band music and then in June 68 um, for the Finger Me Bob TV theme with the Black Dyke Mills band and, uh, you know, I've also heard that the Queen, no less, her favourite music is brass band music. Not the most sophisticated taste. <laughs> but uh, I, I just wanted to play you guys. This is um, a football show called Match of the Day. Jones trying to feed him in Brenda! 1970, it had a new theme tune. And uh, to this day, they still have a sort of variation on it. Listen to the brass on this and see if it kind of reminds you. It's the same kind of sound. (laughs) 
So, you know, again, a very sort of brass heavy song. And it always, it, as I said, it takes me back to that era when I hear the brass arrangement on this song. Oh, it makes me want to reach for a couple of pints and throw up in the terraces. It's just lovely <laughs> hearing that again. <laughs> It's it's interesting because to me, I hear that as the Germanic side of the English personality. This is where the Saxons were, you know. They brought right, over the right. brass, apparently. Very true. But, you know, the song, it, it's lightweight, but, I mean, I can't help but love it. I mean, it just it always makes me smile. And, and once again, it's, it's Paul being... Um, a very disciplined songwriter, and, um, and we, we were talking about the vocal a few minutes ago, and I think it's interesting that, uh, I mean, Paul saw it, he must have seen it as a very processed song because he double-tracked his vocals, which he didn't do on his other sort of nod to um, a different style, which on the album will be coming up, which is Honey Pie, which is a single, it's not double-tracked. But um, Martha, my dear, is completely double tracked through the whole song. So Paul must have seen it as having that um, that single sort of um, this is this is a a catchy song, and I'm going to make it work all the way, like he did with um, like Penny Lane. It's, it's got a multi, it's got a double track vocal all the way through it. And you know something we just alluded to. I think Alan sort of said that you know it it, it works. The song works. Um, mm-hmm. In later years, if he did something like this, I'd most likely be all over it, criticizing it. Not because, you know, oh, it's Beatles, I love it, and it's if it's solo, Paul, I don't love it so much. There's something sort of slightly different there. You know, what do you think it is that he still has during the White Album sessions that isn't there post-Beatles? Is it just not having the others around? Is it not having always George Martin there? What, what do you think the missing factor is? Well, I mean, I, I personally think that it's getting back to what I said. It does. It doesn't have Martha. My, I mean, doesn't have. Um, I'm so tired following it, um, and um, I mean something about just even if John doesn't contribute to the song, doesn't contribute a part or section. Something about knowing that John is in the band and he's competing with you, and you're going to be playing it for him. Just that aspect alone is pretty huge. I mean, that's that's pretty daunting to have hanging over your head so I, I think that has pretty much everything to do with that I agree with Craig on that because uh, there is that psychological thing of when the pressure is completely off he has Paul later on had nobody to please but Paul right. and that's dangerous for any artist I agree too it's not only that he had no one to please but Paul but anybody who was interested in gainsaying anything Paul did would be told, uh, how many hits have you written, you know? Um, Whereas when he was in the Beatles, they were all, uh, even if they weren't really all equals, uh, they kind of liked to see each other as all equals. And I think that they listened to each other in ways that they didn't listen to people afterwards. So Paul was the hit maker, and he'd let you know that. So now we're finding out why there was so much cowbell in certain songs on the White Album. <laughs> I, I never thought of that before. Well, my next track on the album, Oh Bloody Oh Blada.
This is the one that John said Paul was doing everything to make this the next single and it was never going to be the next single. For me, it's a guilty pleasure that points the way to future peril, but I love it, you know, and again, it's one that works. And I don't underestimate also in that regard the contributions of John and George in their roles as the sort of naughty schoolboys while the music teacher, Paul, is trying to keep everything together. Those are the roles that would be repeated during the Get Back project, of course. Well, this, uh, my opinions on, on Obladi Oblada, number one, it is my second least favorite song uh, in our collection today. Uh, though I respect the craft, I respect the little witty bits here and there, and the transgender references in there, which are clever and ahead of their time. Uh, and I, re I also was aware that, that John disliked the songs. Oh, God, he's making us do it a million times. But I think, once again, Paul is justified. Even though the band vetoed it as a single, Marmalade, or Marmalade, depending upon where you grew up, uh, went to number one with it. Right. So maybe Paul was right. And But you see, again, the, the Marmalade version of it is almost a note-for-note, note, you know, imitation of the Beatles version that's my point but it but it but it's somehow a bit smoother a bit poppier it doesn't have <laughs> I wouldn't say oh bloody oh blood has bite anyway but if it has anything going for it it is the John and George contributions and without those on the marmalade version it's just a straightforward pop ditty well it sounds similar to the one I do in my Vegas act there you go <laughs> I think um if we remember uh you know my theory from last time about the white album as a uh compilation of every kind of pop style um basically of the 20th century um you kind of almost need obla de obla da to be there because it is the one example of sort of semi-calypso 
Um, it, 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 it serves that role if you think of the White Album as that grab bag of different pop styles. Um, yeah. it, it also is kind of a fun track. I mean, I know John complained about it and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe a little bit silly, but it, you know what? It's a story. It works. It's fun. And it has that sort of, you know, Jamaican kind of beat that the Beatles pretty rarely got into, even though we know that they liked it a lot. Right. Well, you, isn't this really the period, I think, when uh, the mod subculture, you know, mods and rockers were kind of fading away. The, the rockers kept going in a sense, but the mods sort of split into two groups. You know, they either became hippies or they became the early versions of skinheads and they listened to like ska and American soul music. So in a sense, isn't this they're finally really kind of embracing a bit of ska? Yeah. That was lying around. In other words, I could do, you know, Paul being the craftsman, being the artist, saying, I, I can do that. Watch. Right. Well, this is a real crowd, uh, Paul crowd pleaser. Once again, I mean, this is what Paul does best. And, um, you know, and, and you listen to the earlier versions that they, he discarded and they're they're almost too slick. They're almost too pro too produced and with the horns and everything. And this is an interesting version. I mean, if you it's it's a really strange recording because the music's in mono straight up and then Paul's voice is double tracked but it one's on the left side and one's on the right side which when you do that in a recording you unless you're listening in mono it doesn't sound like it's like a double track vocal so if you put on headphones you can hear the music coming straight out of the center of your head and you can hear one of Paul's vocals on the left side one of Paul's vocals on the right side which gives it a very unique sound. Um, it sounds personal because usually when you double track a vocal, it tends to be less personal, but it's still this uh, has that, uh, it just has that live feeling to it, which, um, you know, when it's the song, you know, it's, uh, it, it does have to be there. It does have to be on the White Album. Yeah, for me, actually, I've always perceived it as the sort of some like it hot of the White Album, this track, because if you know anything about the making of Some Like It Hot, Marilyn Monroe, Billy Wilder directing it, right. she put everyone through hell, you know, going up on her lines and missing mm. her cues and 59 takes and 83 takes of, of certain se segments. Um, and yet you would never know it when you see the on-screen results. You know, it just looks so polished and everyone looks like they're so into and having a great time. And with this song, we know about the tensions that underlay it, that they were sick of doing take after take after take. And even the tempo apparently came out of John just finally getting fed up and sort of slamming his fingers down on the keys and, you know, let's just get on with it. Right. Um, and, and yet, because of the atmospherics and the sort of party atmosphere, it, it glosses over all of that. And you just think that they were completely together on this project. Yeah, totally. And it, it sounds like they're having a lot of fun in those, with those background vocals, too. The little the little side comments they make about lend a hand and and yeah and all that's just, I mean that's things really really great gems to discover when you're wearing headphones and listening to this album. There's a number of them, but that particular song really really has a lot of great little things in there hidden. Yeah, I mean when all else fails, you know their personalities always are there to save the day. Yep, um, absolutely. Also interesting, actually, Eric. You know, you said about the transgender aspect and. Paul revisits that with Get Back not many months later. Yeah, I, I wonder why that was on his mind. We can only speculate. So next on my playlist, Blackbird, which we've already discussed. 
ship singing in the dead of night Take these sunken eyes and learn to see All your life You were only waiting for this moment to be free Blackbird, fly Blackbird, fly Into the light of the dark black night Blackbird singing in the dead of this is the product, in a way, of this little fascination with Bach Boré that um, George and Paul both had when they were starting out. I mean, they probably heard it on a uh, Chet Atkins record. Chet Atkins recorded it in 1958 in a pretty straightforward version. got counterpoint that falls really nicely in the hand um, if you're a guitarist and uh, I think the the two of them liked trying to play the track as they knew it from Chet Atkins and just sort of it, it, it evolved into the guitar part for Blackbird so it's just another influence there that you know doesn't necessarily affect your appreciation of the song itself but it's a, a nice little tidbit I think yeah, that's a good point. I was going to say, when Paul trotted this one out in the 76 tour, when he sat down and did his, uh, with Wings, they did like an acoustic set in the middle right, of the Right, five show. numbers. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I can remember the electricity in the crowd when just the first couple of notes came up and the place just went nuts, as we all did. It it seemed so timeless. It seemed, uh, it didn't seem like an old song at all. It seemed so fresh. And, and still, one of my favorite uh, things he ever did, and a nice little bit of pet sounds, in a sense. He's got the animal, he got the bird call at the end, which uh, to me is always, uh, Paul always, after Pet Sounds, I always listen for where Paul is referencing Pet Sounds, which he still says is like his favorite album. Right. Okay, so then next, again, juxtaposing a sweet song with something way more edgy, Helter Skelter. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide Where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride Till I get to the bottom and I see you again Yeah, yeah, yeah But do you, don't you want me to love you? I'm coming down fast, but I'm miles above you. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Come on, tell me the answer. Well, you may be a lover, but you ain't no dancer. Now, hell the scalder. Hell the scalder. Hell the scalder. Yeah. Whoa. 
get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. And I stop and I turn and I go for a ride. And I get to the bottom and I see you again! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Proto headbanger rock, heavy metal, I mean, whatever you want to say. I mean, he's certainly come a long way from songs like The Night Before. And it's the built-in sloppiness, the couldn't-give-a-shit attitude. I've always perceived this song as sort of Paul's counterpoint to John's Year Blues in terms of the approach, that couldn't-give-a-damn attitude. I completely agree with you on that one, Richard. Uh, I, I, I think it is. It's, it is almost like him trying to, to have that same harshness. The legend I've always heard was it was a reaction to reading, not hearing, but reading about The Who had just recorded the dirtiest blah, 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 you know, Correct. track. Yeah. Right. And so if that myth is true, um, and by the way, uh, Alan, you might remember, what was The Who track that supposedly inspired this? Because I can't remember. Um, he, he never specifically said, but it sounds to me like maybe it was I Can See For Miles, or is that too early for this? No, I believe that's correct. That's the one I read about as well. Hmm. That that's interesting because actually I can see for Miles would have been a lot earlier. I I because that '66 that came out in '67, but it had been already done, so it must have been something else. But but at any rate, whatever the inspiration was, what an amazing thing! And and of course the great tragedy uh, that it was co-opted by uh, a certain nutcase out on the West Coast and forever linked. Myself, even in my own mind, it's uh, uh, it's kind of funny when when my son was little. Uh, we got him hooked on on the uh, Rupert, uh, you know, books, and there was a great cartoon series out of Canada, for, you know, Rupert, the little bear that uh, Paul McCartney actually owns the rights to, the ca- cartoon character from the, I think it's the Daily Express. Anyway, uh, there's one book where, when Trent was little, when my son was little, and it'd be reading, it was all about Rupert goes to the Helter Skelter, and so I actually got to see what a Helter Skelter looked like. I had never actually seen one. For those of us for our listeners in the audience, of course, the Helter Skelter. Oh, really? They they never had Helter Skelters here in America. Oh God, no, no. Oh, okay. So we didn't. We heard that it was a slide, and then and I don't know if the other guys agree with me, um, but we're like a slide. Okay, slide's a slide. Why would you call it something other than a slide? So I didn't realize, you know, kind of had a very specific shape to it, and kind of went round in a. You know, in like a corkscrew type thing. That's right. Didn't you ever see the uh, the artwork in um, Alan Aldridge's Beatles illustrated lyrics? Uh, I'm sorry to say this. I really despised that book. <laughs> I thought it was the worst lot of, you know, uh, and I'm the one that graduated art school here, folks. So let me just tell you, I thought Alan Aldridge's book was terrible. I, you I'd thought never BFA it. about it? I, I think it was a lot of BS. So no, I didn't see it. Oh, it's it's, it's a naked woman and there's a helter skelter going around her body with little guys in bowler hats, I think, going down the slide. And of course, I, I'll let you guess where the slide ends up. Your Honor, I rest my case. Alan, is it an apocalyptic vision in this song? What do you think it's about? Oh, I don't. Th- I I didn't hear it as apocalyptic. I heard it as more, um, you know, sexy in a way. You know, I mean, it it, it just seemed like that. And and it, uh, you know, the again, it's one of those songs where the sound of the song somehow to me is so much more important than what the lyrics are you know, um, in this case. And the funny thing is that a a lot of us who collect this stuff are fascinated with the idea of a 27-minute Helter Skelter, which there is an outtake of. Um, 
And we have heard, I think there were only three versions, and we have heard the third version that came out on Anthology, was it two or three? I think three, three. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just sort of a slow vamp. And so I once had a chat with Mark Lewison about this because he was saying, why is everyone so fascinated with the 27-minute Helter Skelter? And I said, well, because it's you described it in your book as this incredible thing. But which is it? Is it 27 minutes of the one on the White Album or 27 minutes of the one on Anthology 3. And he said it's more like 27 minutes of the one on Anthology 3, which is very disappointing. I would love to hear 27 minutes of the White Album one. That would just be, I mean, I think you'd be dead at the end listening to it. It's just got so much energy. Where the hell was I that all you guys are seeing all this sexual innuendo in these songs? And once again, I... I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just that obviously I've lived a very sheltered life. You know, I just <laughs> I didn't know that there was so much sex in these things. Where I was, I'm still thinking, how how dare Manson co-opt this song about a kid's you know slide? So it just kind of shows you I I'm obviously a little slow in the uptake on some of this. Well, you obviously thought happiness is a warm gun was just about guns, isn't it? <laughs> so Craig, what do you think of the track? Oh, Helter Skelter, it's it's really the song that every rocker wants to play. I mean, it's really great. And yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, just, it's as sexual as why don't we do it in the road, you know. Ha- have you played it live? I have. Um, I've, well, I've played it twice. Um, one time, Ann Wilson and I, we did a, um, we did a, a special benefit show in Seattle and we did, God, we did Maybe I'm Amazed. We did Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except for Me and My Monkey. And we did Helter Skelter. And then one time um, I went up with a Cheap Trick and we did it for a sound check, which was a blast. Um, um, and that's about the only two times I've actually ever performed it. I mean, I've, I've played it a million times personally. but um, Have you got the recordings with either Anne or Cheap Trick? Unfortunately, I don't. You know, and it's, I, I, I wish I would have. Um, uh, the Anne thing was probably in 04, and cheap th- mm. the Cheap th- Trick thing was just um, last year. Um, right. Uh, but, um, you know, the song, it's it's great. It's a, it's, uh, it's a great recording, and, uh, and um, Paul's voice is just, he's throwing all caution to the wind. I mean, this is one of those songs I'm really glad that we have the isolated tracks available to us. Um, I think I said before on the John... Um, podcast that that his bass playing is stellar and it adds a lot to the um, the energy of the song
it's a bizarre song. It's got the weird delay on Ringo's drums on those fills, and um, it it's a great guitar sounds, and yeah, uh, it's just a, it's I, I love it. And and getting back to the anthology whole. Uh, uh, anthology three the slow version of it i agree it's a total i mean it's like the first time i started listening to it i was kept thinking oh boy i hope this like gets better soon or i'm going to hit the fast forward button and um you know i think the beatles in general really uh, just in general with anthology and all this they they they're their shit meter as far as what was good and what wasn't good was really strong. And I think they've, they've, there's no real crazy hidden gems out there like there are with, with Brian Wilson and Pet Sounds and Smile. And I mean, there's some amazing stuff that was unearthed. With the Beatles, you go, yeah, that's pretty cool, but does it have staying power? And I mean, the Beatles, like when they got rid of the alternate versions of Obla Dio Da, it was the right thing to do. And and the same with um, Helter Skelter, the slow version. It sounds like they're just jamming and having a little bit of fun. It doesn't sound like it's particularly serious to me. Yeah, th that for me, the anthology version of Helter Skelter was as disappointing as actually take one of Tomorrow Never Knows. Interesting, but ultimately it's nothing compared to the final take. Right. Uh, Craig, I, w I was going to ask you, as somebody who had to perform this live, mm -hmm. I always think that this is McCartney's perhaps most difficult vocal outside of the, the really sweet things like Mother Nature's Son, you can kind of fake it, but that see you again part, uh, holy moly, uh, you either have it or you don't. You know, oh, there's yeah. really no way to Vegas that one up. And uh, I mean, <laughs> it, is was that the part that you would say most musicians look at and say, oh boy, I, I either do this and nail it and impress everyone or I look like an idiot? Or or, or do that, does that not even enter the mind? Oh, it totally enters the mind. It's like the, the ending of Hey Jude, which we'll get to. Um, the well, I mean, Paul's, um, Paul's um, ad-libs on on Hey Jude are just oh my god I mean you you have to be somebody of of Ann Wilson's or you really have to be a a rocker a rock and roll singer who has a range and really 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 knows how to deliver and sit on top of a song I mean that's what makes Helter Skelter work and 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 that's what makes Paul songs in general work quite often because I consider like like when, when a true artist can actually take the production and he's, he's got the song recorded and then he as a vocalist can sit on top of that song and take command of it and that's what separates just an average singer from a great singer it's not necessarily ability but Paul happens to have incredible ability as well as that option Stevie Wonder is another example where just you get these singers that just they can they can take that song and they can they it's like it's almost like they're sitting out that they put everything inside of a box and then they close the lid of the box but the box is so full that it could spring open but they sit on top of that box and they control it and they're the ones that are just they're calling the shots and Paul does that on Helter Skelter brilliantly it's interesting what you said there about containing and being in control of it the, the the other side of that is you mentioned Stevie Wonder and the same you know Paul on this track they're also they have this ability to have no inhibition when they finally deliver that vocal right, right. it's as if they just let it out mm -hmm. it's an amazing thing absolutely and it's also a discussion that Richard that you and I have had about John in the past and, and how his voice changed over the years yes mm-hmm 
One other thing I wanted to uh, ask Alan about is this is the track that always comes to mind for me in terms of the comparisons between the mono and stereo versions of the White Album. As we know, a lot of the tracks have significant differences. I mean, you know, uh, was it Ringo's song also, Don't Pass Me By, is significantly different. But Helter Skelter, Alan, why don't you take us through some of the differences? The main one that comes to mind is the ending. I I think the mono one just fades out and that's it. It doesn't have the coda and it doesn't have Ringo shouting, I've got blisters on my fingers. got to the bottom of why there were these significant differences was this in, was this intentional on the part of the beatles i mean what was going on uh ken scott says yes ken scott says that he once spoke to paul and it might have been around the time of the white album um and paul said he they wanted different mixes because collectors would buy them both now i don't know if it were paul saying it i would say that he's just come up with something new and you know like the blackbird story and and is sort of updating reality um ken scott i don't really know to do that kind of thing so it's it's kind of interesting that it's his memory and um uh you know, otherwise, I think it's just that uh, if that wasn't true, I think it could just be that, you know, they're sitting there with these uh, for, for the White Album. I think they were using a track. They've got these a track tapes right. to mix and they didn't necessarily feel that they had to be exactly like each other. You know, they, they, they have a mono mix. They like it. Now we're going to do a stereo mix. Let's see. I mean, you would think with something as different as not having a coda and that screamed i've got blisters on my fingers at the end that they might have thought you know we we should go back and add that to the mono mix but seemingly they didn't think that i think the mono was still in their mind the tighter one Mm -hmm. uh alan and i i would say that the looser stuff being in stereo was always a history with them whether that's the flubbed line and please please me or or whatever so maybe that's part of it um but uh that, that springs to mind in a sense. But, you know, the mixes were a performance in their own right at that time. I mean, you think about the difference like the, the, the guitar and the, the rooster in um, Sgt. Pepper's, uh, the, the reprise and this and that. But um, getting back to that uh, comment about the collectors, you know, my memory is is that, I mean, I didn't think that people were necessarily collectors at that time as we think of them now. It's easy to say now that we can go back and we can get the mono and the stereo version. Back then, I mean, you either had like a stereo in your living room or you had a hi-fi. And, and I, it's almost like, well, you can't play a stereo record because it's going to ruin the hi-fi needle and, um, and all that. So I remember you would just buy whatever your parents, in um, this case, would happen to have in their living room. 
So I, I don't I don't re remember anybody buying both versions of it. I don't because that you know the white album was seven dollars. That was some serious change, yeah. and I don't remember anybody having fourteen bucks to throw around on getting two versions of the album. Well, there was no option in America for the uh, for the for the mono anyway because that was that, that had been discontinued. The idea of mono and stereo albums, at least uh, for pop records, right. so they only brought over the master. I mean, Capitol only ever had the. Uh, the stereo master. Yeah, I mean, I listened to Beatles records pretty closely in those days, and um, had a mono first, and then a stereo. And it and it wasn't really until maybe 1972 I began noticing the differences. So it it that's why it struck me as kind of a strange thing for Ken Scott to say, but that seems right. to be his memory of of that conversation. My next track is "I Will." Who knows how long I've loved you, yeah No, I love you still Will I wait a lonely lifetime If you want me to, I will mm. You know if I ever saw you I didn't catch your name, but it never really matters. I will always feel the same. Love you forever and forever. Love you with all my heart. Love you whenever we're together. Love you with all my heart And when at last I find you Your song will fill the air Sing it loud so I can hear you Make it easy to be near you For the things you do and you to I personally always heard the sort of sophisticated sounding sequel to P.S. I Love You. I think of it as the sequel to And I Love Her. And I think of it as a sequel to Here, There, and Everywhere. All right, you're I just up hear it by itself. Just, I, I, <laughs> there we go. That's probably the way to do it. Oh. <laughs> round four, and we move on to the next round. <laughs> I, I mean, one thing that stands out about it, is, and I never realized it for years was the a cappella bass line, the right. fact that he actually sings the bass line. Oh, you didn't hear that. That's interesting. Uh, that no, was not, not initially, my... no. Not when I was a kid. So, so you, your ears were gone even then. There you go. So, so I mean, well, yeah, it's another guilty pleasure for me, this song. And, uh, you know, that's the point I was going to get to, actually, that there are a few guilty pleasures on the White Album for me when we come to Paul's White Album. And he gets away with it every time on this album. They are pleasures. But... Again, it's pointing the way towards trouble in the future, as far as I'm concerned. Really? I, I don't see why it should be guilty. I mean, yeah, the, the, the lyrics aren't bad, but 
forget the lyrics and just listen to that melody. Listen to all the twists and turns that melody takes. I mean, this is when people talk about McCartney's strength as a melodist. This is this is a fantastic example of it. Mm. Completely yeah, absolutely. agree. Absolutely. You know, and the other thing is, is that uh, you know, the the Paul's Paul is a great um, romantic songwriter and. Um, and songs that are about love don't necessarily have to be deep. And uh, that's why I think this song works. Um, and also the way it's put across. I mean, the 12-string the um, acoustic guitar that's playing the, uh, the little riffs in between, it, the, it's very heavily compressed and it has a lot of compression on it. It almost sounds like an electric guitar, but it's, it's really well, well done. It's, just, it's, a, it's really Paul being what he does best, being Paul. It's just a great love song. And I think uh, for the listeners out there who are less familiar with a lot of the stuff than we are, uh, the legend has always been that this, in fact, was Paul's proposal to Linda. So it kind of shows you how long it took to do the White Album in many ways. It started off with the writing process with Jane, and somewhere in the middle you've got a little bit of Francie Schwartz. And then uh, by the time September rolls around and they're still recording the album, he's writing his his uh, proposal to uh, the love of his life or the first love of his life. Foreshadowing George with Beautiful Girl, which ended up on the 33 and a third album as a sort of tribute to Olivia, but it started off as, I think the first verse was written when he was with Patty. Still with Patty, yeah. It's right. something interesting, and, and I don't know if that is it truly an urban myth or it, or it is, in fact. Did Paul in the day ever say that that was his proposal or has he just kind of said it since then? Alan, what? <laughs> I haven't run into him saying it in the day, no. Yeah, I just always wondered about that, because it, if, it, if it is, in fact, a proposal, how subtle and how lovely and under, underscoring what Greg said, had, that it just shows the craftsmanship of a guy that can come up with a new way of, of saying I love you without saying I love you. Or, you know, that's uh, pretty, pretty good stuff for a kid in his 20s. In some ways, it's a very lighter version of um, God Only Knows. It's like, it's it's obviously doesn't have the weight or nearly the depth that, that God Only Knows has, but it's like, if I have to wait, you know, what would I be without you, that whole thing. It, it, it's it, it has never that, made that connection, but once yeah. again, right back to Pet Sounds, the album he loves so much. It's longing, you know, and, and, and when you can tie in, like, um, a, a love song with longing, it's... Uh, there's, it's never a bad thing. It's always going to work in somebody's life at some time. All right, so the three of you have persuaded me. I don't feel guilty about it anymore. Okay. <laughs> never feel guilty. <laughs> Talking of which, coming up next, Rocky Raccoon. Okay. Which is... Now, all I said was never feel guilty. There's all these sinister laughs. You've all got <laughs> filthy minds. Oh, you know, you're the innocent amongst us. Absolutely. Except for when I watch the monkeys do it in the road. There you go. Uh, that was shocking. To himself. Rocky Raccoon. The Rocky Raccoon. He was a fool unto himself. And he would not swallow his foolish pride. Mind you, coming from a little town in Minnesota, it was not the kind of thing that a young guy did when a fellow went and stole his chick away from him now rocky raccoon 
checked into his room Only to find Gideon's Bible Rocky had come Equipped with a gun To shoot off the legs of his rival His rival, it seems Had broken his dreams By stealing the girl of his fancy Her name was McGill And she called herself Lil But everyone knew her as Nancy Now she and her man Who called himself Dan Were in the next room at the hoedown A rocky burst in And grinning a grin He said, Danny boy This is a showdown But Daniel was hot He drew fast and shot And Rocky collapsed in the corner I don't dislike it. I don't dislike any of Paul's White Album, but my least favourite track, it's the one I'd be most likely to skip past. Once I'm, you know, engaged in it, it's entertaining enough that some of the lyrics are pretty amusing and it's a very nice tempo to the song. It sweeps you along. But if it wasn't on there, I don't think I'd miss it. Oh, no. Here's your gimmick. You know, this is too much of a... I mean, it works as a kid's record, I suppose. We get back to that whole theory of mine of kids' records. And... I think he's setting us up for Maxwell Silverhammer. Uh, but even that, I even like Maxwell's better than this one. I, I just There's something about this, just too much of a gimmick. It goes on too long, and, and it's it to me is the worst of the filler. Uh, and, and I agree with you. This is the one, if I was going to cut one off, I would gladly swap out Jubilee from the demo sessions that got used on his on the first McCartney solo album. I'd much mm-hmm. rather see Jubilee in here than Rocky Raccoon. I think it's cute. <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it's another one where his his he has relatively you know clever lyrics that tell the story. And I'll tell you, I get sent on an out of town assignment. I check to see if there's a Gideon Bible there, just because of Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> I never even heard of it before, Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> But they're everywhere in hotels. So, um, you know, and I actually think through the rest of the verse about speeding Good Rocky's revival. And, uh, yeah, it tells you how sick it can be. Uh, uh, would you feel as positive about it if had it been on a post-Beatles Paul album? I don't know. You know, he doesn't really write stories like that on his anymore, does he? You know, they're no. just sort of riffs with, uh, you know, vocal riffs, too, in a way. I mean, it, I, I can't think of anything quite like this on a solo album, so probably not. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I was 14 when this record came out, so, I mean, I, I sort of kind of thought it was an amusing story when I first heard it and never really was able to shake that. And then the Gideon's Bible thing took over. <laughs> Yeah. Well, as far as uh, po- if it was on a post-Beatles album by Paul, 
to give you some indication, I think Loop, the first Indian on the moon, is a far more interesting track than Rocky <laughs> Raccoon. So that might, you know, just my two cents. Yeah. My tuppence. Craig? Um, yeah, I agree with everybody. The one word that comes to mind is, well, is cute as well. Um, I think the song is, um, for me, it meant more when I was a kid in listening to the White Album in its totality. And it's, as I've gotten older, it's sort of dropped off. Um, it, it's lower on the ranks as far as Beatle, McCartney songs. Um, I, I, one thing I found rather interesting about hearing alternate versions of this is the the part with um, where they sort of get into the uh, the ragtime with the piano. Um, I, I always found it was interesting that like Paul's um, he had a very good sense of what that melody was because he's singing it before the piano was on there, and um, so he in, in alternate versions, so he obviously knew what he wanted for that to be. Um, so the intro is different on alternate versions, but that da 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 it's interesting because it's the same on, on an alternate version. So he knew ahead of time that this is what I want to put in that middle section. Well, I think all these things also play into that, that idea of every possible kind of pop music on this right. album and Rocky Raccoon has a place there. It's uh it's not exactly a country western song that's for Ringo to do um but it's kind of, you know, it's kind of folky and the setting of the, you know, Dakotas uh just kind of kind of make it a little bit countryish in a way. Originally it was Minnesota and he changed it to Dakota. Yeah, they have some interesting um, ideas about American geography and and things. You know, there's the there's that section <laughs> in the Let It Be outtakes where he stops and says, "I've got it." Jojo left his home in Tucson, Arizona, and John says, "Is Tucson in Arizona?" And Paul says, "Yeah, it's where they filmed High Chaparral." <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, at least on, on Rocky Raccoon, we get Paul going full bore on his American right. accent, right? That, that, you know, he showed off on Short of Fall. Well, next, Honey Pie. She was a working girl North of England way Now she's hit the big time In the USA And if she could only hear me This is what I'd say Honey pie My position is tragic Come and show me the magic of your Hollywood song Now honey pie You were driving me frantic Sail across the Atlantic To be where you belong You became a legend Of the silver screen Honey pie, come back to me. 
across the sea Kindly send her sailing back to me Now honey pie You are making me crazy Honey pie is kind of interesting to me it's it's the first time uh, Paul will revisit this again and again it, it calls to mind in 74 when he did his dad's track on a on a single, Walking Through the Park with Eloise. A little bit later on in his solo career where he did You Gave Me the Answer. Uh, I remember he referred to this in an interview in the mid-'70s, calling it fruity music. I remember he said, I like that fruity kind of music, and I may end up doing that uh, as I get older, when I get a bit too decrepit to rock. Uh, obviously, Paul is now in his 70s, and he's not too decrepit to rock, so we may never get to hear the fruity uh, stage. Well, his voice is. Yeah, that's really sad. Uh, but he could he could work around that. We'll do that in a later show, I'm sure. That's another talk show, about... yeah. It's really the music hall tradition, right? You've got some of that in Martha, My Dear. We certainly had that in When I'm 64. And as you said, later on, you gave me the answer on the Venus and Mars album. But all um, he's missing here is the Rudy Valley megaphone. I mean, this is really yeah. very, very in the moment of, of that. You know, as a kid, I just took it. That's the Beatles doing something I've never heard. I, I had no musical reference before that. Uh, wh- what was the reaction as a teenager, Alan, hearing music of 30 years previous on a Beatles record um, that was even worse than when I'm 64? Yeah, well, I mean, it seemed a little bit strange, but it also seemed kind of interesting. I mean, we knew we knew that their childhoods they listened to this kind of stuff, this kind of stuff their parents listened to, um, and that the BBC played still, even though it was a little dated. Um, but I mean, to me, this is you, you mentioned the Rudy Valley megaphone. I think he should have sang it through a megaphone. That would have um, it, it really in, almost needs that, and it should have come out exclusively on seventy eight. Oh, that would have been cool. Know. Now yeah, they do with, that <laughs> with all the scratches and everything, you know. But uh, <laughs> back again to the different pop styles. But it it kind of shows Paul's command. If like it's sort of like if you were to go to Paul and say, I, "I'd like to have a song from the, like the twenties or thirties. Can you do it?" And yeah, he can do it. Yeah, he you really know, can. He, he knows he, he what the style is. He knows the kind of melodies they had. Between him and George Martin, they knew the kind of accompaniment it should have. And it, I, I think it I think it works. If, if it was on 78 and really scratchy and didn't sound exactly like Paul, you could probably pass it off as a song from that era. You know, there's one improvement, Alan, and, and guys that maybe you'll agree with me. It would have pushed it to the top of the pile for me if they just had Patty doing boop boopy doo in there somewhere. <laughs> just would have, it just would have done it for me. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. I'll, I'll be quiet now. I think we need to do a Patty podcast. <laughs> Anytime. I feel that one coming on, yeah. Oh, yeah. baby. So, yeah. so, so, Craig, what do you think of it? Um, yeah, I, I agree that it's just like it's it's looking at it at the time, it's like I didn't necessarily think of it being as um, – as, as music from 30 years before that, it was just the Beatles being the Beatles. And, and you know, in, in that era, too, I mean, you think about what we were listening to on the radio. Um, I mean, pe- people nowadays don't have any concept of what, what pop radio was back in those days. You'd have classical gas followed by, um, you know, the beat goes on, followed by this and that, you know, and in those days we had Winchester Cathedral and we Mm -hmm. had Tiptoe Through the Tulips and um, there there was a lot of diversity on the radio and I'm sure Paul is just 
being Paul and tapping into that, saying, I can do it. And George Martin is standing right there, and he knows how to make those clarinets sound like they were recorded in the 20s and 30s, and um, and we can do it. And, and John chimes in with the perfect guitar sound and the perfect guitar solo, and um, it just all it, works. Isn't that kind of ironic? We discussed, you know, John's guitar work on this on the uh, previous show the, the john's right. white album show but it, it's ironic for me because he never wasted an opportunity to publicly express his disdain for jazz music and the elites you know going back to his college days who dug it um and yet here he shows quite a deft hand playing that solo he sure does and um um yeah, I'm sure in some ways he was probably thrilled that Paul said, hey, you know, go ahead and take over. Go ahead and do something in here. And as a musician, I'm sure John was probably ecstatic about it. So it's like, this, how cool. What a cool thing to do. And, you know, not looking at it, the, the, the totality of the song, but just, you know, here's a cool chance for me to have a little fun with the guitar. Well, this song is definitely a guilty pleasure for me. And uh, I don't think any amount of persuading will change me from feeling guilty on it but uh, <laughs> I think the moment in it that makes me feel the most awkward is when he goes overboard that falsetto part you know uh, was it I like I mean, this kind of hot kind of music yeah. and he starts play going really me, kind of me honey with blues yeah yeah, that may have that may have been a bit ill-advised. You know, I, I just feel like saying, you know, please will you stop you're embarrassing me in front of my friends <laughs> <laughs> mom make him stop <laughs> So up next on my playlist, Birthday.
just a great infectious rocker. It, you know, we know that it was recorded in, you know, a single day, the 18th of September, 68, and that the Beatles at one point during the session went round the corner to Paul's house to watch The Girl Can't Help It on TV because back in those days, I think a film had to be seven years old before it was even shown on TV. So, you know, it was a great moment for them to be able to see this and revisit their youth. And then they came back and did the song. And I just think, yeah, it's just got a great energy. I I love the Patty and Yoko backing vocals. Right. And, Paul's lead guitar and George's bass and Ringo's drumming and the John and Paul lead vocals. And for me, it's like the energy in a way recaptures them, you know, in their old club days back in Liverpool and Hamburg. Absolutely. It's funny that we think of it as a Paul song because it, it really, I think, came together with all of them contributing. So it, the, the credit really should be Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, Starr, and of course, Mel Bay. <laughs> Anybody, anybody who learned guitar from a Mel Bay book has run into that bass pattern, you know, when published way before, way before the White Album. I used to have those Mel Bay books, but I obviously they didn't do a damn right. bit of good. But uh, I didn't realize that. That's news to me. Well, it's just a, it's just a classic, a classic pattern that you would use in a one four five kind of kind of thing, and they just put it in, like made it central focus. Yeah, and it's also a riff that that's that Paul's done variations on. It's almost it's you know I mean it's a little bit like the bass part in uh, I saw her standing there. Um, it's a slower, obviously, and a little different, but it's it it, it is really just a basic um, um, basic rock riff, you know. But the thing is with this song, I think it's just Paul being being Paul in the sense that I'm sure that he probably thought, well, if I have a birthday song, you know, at least at least someone's going to get to hear this song at least one day out of the year, you know, and, and he was right. It's like, it's like thinking, okay, a birthday song, it's, it's going to get played on everybody's birthday. It's there, there aren't any birthday songs. So this is a great sort of little niche as a songwriter, as a song crafter to fill. I prefer his birthday song to his Christmas song. <laughs> yes. Which will get a ton of airplay right now. <laughs> Well, I think it, it's um, obviously the, the there's never a left turn in the lyrics that you would expect. Lennon would say it's birthday, but here's two fingers for you, or something like that. You know, it never it never gets out of that sort of enthusiastic Paul McCartney. You know, we're going to have a good time, or you know, John might say we're going to go get pissed because I'm old. Maybe that's why John referred to it as a piece of garbage in the uh, 1980 Playboy that, interview. That was a dead giveaway that he didn't consider it really part of his canon. <laughs> But it was cannon fodder. Yeah, really. Okay, so my closing track, Hey Jude, Mm. which for me is just greatness. It's not just greatness, you know, by Beatles standards. It's greatness in Western popular music. I think it really is a high point. I remember in the Heroes of Rock and Roll documentary from 79, if any of you guys saw that, and... uh, I remember in the narration, he just says, pop music never had a finer moment. I would agree. You know, the the melody, the lyrics, the performance, the promo video, and my memory of watching it, you know, Frost on Sunday. um, Just unforgettable. Perfection for me. I'm with you. Yeah, of course, we got to see it as part of the Smothers Brothers show where uh, it was introduced as Jude as opposed to Hey Jude. And uh, yeah, I think that, 
it's one of those Beatles songs that unfortunately now for me, I've just heard it too many times, but it certainly at the time, it seemed like it would never, ever be topped. And uh, I have it as my second to last song on my list. But yeah, it was really obviously the first the first real hit to break the three minute barrier or a three and a half minute barrier. Am I correct with that, Alan? I think so. You know, and uh, a tradition that was later taken to its illogical extreme years later by the Orb, who had a hit single that was about 40 minutes long. Unless you count What Did I Say, which was split over two sides of a single. Oh, there's a few. Oh, there's a few of those a a little bit later. Yeah. I see you saying In the Day, that was split over two sides. You're right. Well, you could do that with Fingertips, too. Fingertips part one and two. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Later on, Layla. All right. So back to Hey Jude. I just think it's just so wonderful. I know you said that you've heard it so many times now that I, I don't think it ever loses the impact for me. It loses it when he does it live and it's, you know, with the audience. Okay, all of you on the left and now yeah, all of right. you on this the right. That's right, this side of the room, that side of the room. And yeah. I think you, what you had started off by saying is, is the power of seeing it live, and I agree with you, is being a kid, we didn't, of course, have the Frost show, or at least not that version of the David Frost show. We got to see it as part of the Smothers Brothers show. And, right. uh, you know, Tommy is out there mis you know misidentifying the song but you could even see the excitement in in uh in tommy smothers introducing it it is tommy right i always get the two of them confused dickie is, is the dark tommy one. Yeah, yeah okay so yeah. so so it's tommy out there saying and it's the beatles new record jude and uh, and he goes and you know the last few years the beatles we've seen it's they're singing to records he's trying to describe miming to those of us who pretty much probably already knew what that meant but you could see the excitement and this idea of this epic performance, this epic song, to see it with the crowd all around the Beatles. That helped, at least for me as a little kid, think it was, you know, just quasi-religious. You know, it was something that uh, for many, many years a, a favorite. But I yeah, just think over time, you know, I certainly understand its importance and the record certainly much better than the solo live performances. But it's just one... You know, I've just heard it a bunch of times. Well, certainly, uh, Linda's live performance. Oh, okay. please. <laughs> now, now. You know, for the Smothers Brothers, this really was a coup. Um, I'm not sure how much we thought about that it, at, at the time. But if you think about it, I mean, the Smothers Brothers was on Sunday night at 9, immediately following the Ed Sullivan show, which used to get all the Beatles clips up to that time, you know, in between when they stopped playing live and, you know, starting with Paperback Writer and Rain, um, they always went to Sullivan. And, you know, here these guys are a very different kind of show from Sullivan and Sullivan is still on the air. And now they've got these two songs, which they did on uh, successive weeks and within that same period, George Harrison turned up live um, on the Smothers Brothers. Yeah, to um, because they had run into some problems with um, censors. I believe it had to do with Pete Seeger singing Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, um, which everyone took as what it was, was a basically a Vietnam protest. Um, and well, they had other problems, too. I mean, there's that great yeah. opening. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, on the Smothers Brothers show where they had all the writers lined up, one of whom was Steve Martin as a young man. And mm-hmm. uh, they're they're looking at all the jokes. They're like looking at the script and they, all these guys who are the comedy writers are playing the part of censors and they laugh and then right. they, they rip the jokes out. And then, then finally they just hand what's left of a sheet to the Smothers Brothers. So, yeah, they were obviously the cooler show. Uh, and, and actually, even the Get Back single... Uh, 
the video for that also didn't make Sullivan initially. It was it was on um, Glenn repl- Campbell. It was on the Glenn Campbell, which was the summer version of the Smothers Brothers show. It was the same slot. It was the same set. It was same everything. That would hardly have been a hip show, though, Glenn Campbell. Uh, well, it had the same writing staff, and uh, Glenn was incredibly hot at the time because of Wichita Lineman and stuff. So he kind of, I mean, it wasn't certainly the Smothers Brothers, but it, and it, I think it eventually got its own show. I can't quite remember if they spun it off completely. But but I, my point really being that at that moment in 68, the 68 election, everything going on, Pat Paulson running for president, that the coolest place they could show this for a young audience would certainly have been the Smothers Brothers show. And certainly when Ed made it worth their while in 1970, he built an entire show around their two promo films from uh, from Let It Be. And they did the, you know, the Beatles songbook. So they did return to Ed eventually. I think Ed just had to make it worth their while. Right. I, for one, am glad that Paul vetoed George's guitar part where he wanted to play call and response with the vocal. Absolutely. Once again, they were great self-editors in the day. And that's one of those difficult decisions. How do you tell a legend who's now a legend? You know, this idea is a bit under the arm. And unfortunately, in that particular case... Why wouldn't George take offense? I understand, but it's I understand it from all sides. George must have um, must have really enjoyed it when Wilson Pickett's cover came out shortly after the Beatles version, where it not only did have the guitar um, call and response, but the guitar was Dwayne Allman. <laughs> the guitar response would have been made made more sense in a you know the group like the band or something like that, where George was hanging out with and and you know and. And uh, yeah, it's um, it, it, it is much better, and it, it's you know the song is it's quite a simple song, and the lyrics are vague, um, but it is one of Paul's best songs, and um, it, it's better without the the guitar answer, um, just to keep it open like that. And there's been many songs that that sort of mirrored that that type of production afterwards, and I think. It, those those songs really bear out Paul's idea, and 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 at the time John was really wasn't really a legend. He was just a mate, you know. He was the he was a bandmate, and and so it would have made sense for Paul to say, hey, you know, it's 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 it. I think it's better without it. Do you guys? Uh, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you, Richard. I don't know if you if the other guys have seen it either. Uh, just a, a, as a testament to what that song means in popular culture. A few years ago, somebody found Paul McCartney's old Aston Martin, the green Aston Martin that he actually wrote the song in as he was driving down to visit Julian Lennon. I've always wondered about that, by the way. Did he just pull off on the side of the road or was he writing while driving? Well, that's a great... I guess we'd have to ask Paul and actually we probably wouldn't get a very good answer. (laughs) But (laughs) I think however he did it, even if he was just thinking about it and maybe writing the snatch of 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 a word down, you know, as he's going, I have no idea, but they've always... You know, that's what I always heard. He was in that particular car, which if there's film of him having in that car in 66, we had it for a couple of years, obviously. Uh, but that was the big thing when they restored it. Like, this is the very vehicle that Hey Jude was written in. So I have a video of that I'll share with you guys and probably share it with the listeners, too. Yeah, I mean, one thing that for me is really remarkable about the song, amongst many things, uh, is that extra long coda. And, you know, Paul's ad libs, his improvisations, not one of them is daft. You know, it's like if he did that 
you know, a few years later, you wonder what would get thrown into the mix. But every ad lib is distinct from all the others, and every one of them works for me. It's just fantastic. It's truly one of his high points as a singer, that, that coda. And it's Paul as the uh, as the gospel preacher. I mean, that, that in a sense, the the greatest tribute to a uh, to a little Richard. In a sense, he's reinvented himself as a little Richard preacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are the odds he would have got it this right, the song, if he was out of the Beatles' orbit? He was on. I think you said it earlier. He was on fire. I loved even the little. I'm going to run down my Paul's White album in a bit and. I think he was just capable of these little snatches of things. Think about how he'd write these little throwaways like goodbye and it was, you know, fantastic or, you know, come and get it, you know, all in that sort of era. Uh, right. I, I think he just had, he was just at the top of his game. I think that it, it just flowed effortlessly to a, to a kid in his twenties, you know, who just had a, an abundance of talent. Well, Hey Jude to me is like, um, I, I, it's one of Paul's best songs and, and, and yeah, it's been way overplayed, but I still, when I hear the studio version, the original Beatles version, I won't turn it off. Um, I, it just brings back too many great memories for me, and um, I can't really sit through any of the live versions of it. Um, it it'd be like we, it would even though it's Paul's signature song, I would probably go to the concession stand and get a drink or something. And um, and I, the song would still be going when I got back to my seat, so I wouldn't really worry about missing too much. Um, but I, I do love the studio version of it. It's just, it, it, it's it's a magical time, and it's a, just a magical song. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a minor thing that is in retrospect rather than what we were thinking at the time. I mean, I remember at the time when that record came out, having that long ending, you know, after the verses, and it just would keep repeating and repeating and repeating. Um, it was actually kind of radical, um, especially with the record being that long. You have to assume that someone at a record company must have said, well, I, I really can see three minutes we can cut out of here and, you know, uh, and fade it early or something. But um, the, the odd thing is that it was... I think part of something else that was going on at the time, and I know I didn't know much about it at the time, but um, they might have been hearing about it through Yoko, and that is the birth of minimalism. You know, in 1968, you, I mean, Terry Riley did In C in 1964, and Steve Reich and Philip Glass were beginning to do their experiments with repetitive music in New York, and at the time they were having relatively small audiences, but, you know, that thing exploded, and Hey Jude, um, and then I Want You, She's So Heavy, and then... I don't want to be a soldier. You know, those three, or those things are minimalism uh, in a rock context to me. And you're absolutely right. And in going back to just the production of that song, I mean, think about what that song, what led up to that song. And then all of a sudden you hear, hey, Jude, and you got piano, one acoustic guitar, bass, and drums, and a tambourine. And then you got the whole coda, but just think about the bulk of the song. It's very, very simple. It's probably one of the most simple, most stripped-down Beatles songs with all four of them performing of any of their songs. And and that was radical in itself for the time. Just it just the song was just 
so, so basic. You wonder if that led to the the Get Back project, you know, the inspiration, the success of that in a sense, and showcasing it on David Frost, uh, the the ideas of, well, let's rehearse new simple material and play it live, you know, kind of like we just did on Frost. At uh, Twickenham. Yeah. yeah. Right, absolutely. At the same place, exactly. Interesting mm-hmm. piano sound on that track, though, isn't it? It is, um, and uh, it's it's got a little bit of compression. I always found it was interesting on the the David Frost thing how Paul's singing over his lead vocal, um, causing it to be double tracked, um, which I it, it was an interesting thing. They could have removed it, um, and they kind of sneak it in, and because uh, the song really works best when it's uh, I was talking about that earlier with uh, Martha My Dear being double tracked. The song Hey Jude works better when it's just a solo Paul as opposed to him singing over his lead vocal and and basically forcing a sort of a double-tracked situation. It was just an interesting concept. Let, let me get back to that get, that uh, piano sound you were commenting on, Richard. Richard, wasn't the basic track recorded at Trident? It was. Okay, it was, well, yes. one of the things, when you, when you go take the Trident, when you get into that studio, one of the things they talk about is that very particular upright piano uh, that is resident and has been resident there and was used on tons of hits from David Bowie to Elton John. That There was a peculiar sound they tell you about. They say, you know, musicians just loved the sound of this funky, beat-up, upright piano, and I think that that's what was used. I think that's where you're getting that timbre and that character of sound. It's from that trident uh, upright. That's correct. You know, an upright piano tends to be more... Uh, in your face, it's it's less ambient. Um, it's easier to mic, and uh, it's they're, they're they they just they're much more present. Yeah, and that exact one though, it's so funny that they talk about it and they, with reverent tone. You know that that people said, "Don't ever move it, don't touch it." You know, other musicians, Elton amongst them, apparently, who just loved it, just loved how that one particular one sounded for recording. So, all right, so why don't we go through each of our playlists? I'll just repeat my one. It starts with Back in the USSR, Wild Honey Pie, Mother Nature's Son, Why Don't We Do It in the Road, Martha My Dear, Obladi Oblada, Blackbird, Helter Skelter, I Will, Rocky Raccoon, Honey Pie, Birthday, and Hey Jude. Junk. A nice melody. Personally, though, I don't regret it not being included on this record. I couldn't figure out where to put it in the sequence, really. I just said I'd trade it for, for Rocky, but but I'll, I I had it third in my sequence. So I'll go next. I agree with you, Richard, for the opener. It's got to be back in the USSR. And uh, my second song is Blackbird, because I like the idea of the, the two sound effects kind of fading, two sound effects records next to each other. My third song would be Jubilee. The next one would be I Will. I'd go from I Will to Birthday. Then I would slip in the Can You Take Me Back track, and I would go to Honey Pie. Uh, And from Honey Pie into Helter Skelter, because I find them both slightly demented, uh, into Why Don't We Do It in the Road, to Rocky Raccoon, to Oblidi Oblida, to Martha My Dear. I would then have a little segment of a song called Heather. Heather, Heather, Heather. <laughs> Great. You take a cup, maybe fat, you put it on the map. What have you got? You got Heather, Heather. 
is a little throwaway from November of 68 when Paul was working on uh, Mary Hopkins' album and Donovan from, from Rishikesh dropped by to see if he could sell a song or two. It seems to be a tribute to his about-to-be daughter, adopted daughter. But uh, I found, I love this little melody, an example of what I was just talking about, how he could just knock off these little things off the top of his head. Just to finish my list now, Mother Nature's Son, which I think fits with Heather, Hey Jude, and then after a delay, Wild Honey Pie. Creative. Yeah, that's the way my strange mind works. Okay, mine would start with back in the USSR. I guess we, we all seem to agree on that. Um, then Mother Nature's Son. Uh, then Obladi Oblada. And then a little zoological section with Martha, my dear, Blackbird, and Rocky Raccoon. Um, and then, oh, I, I neglected to mention that mine would be available only on vinyl. And would end, side one would end with I will. Side two would begin with birthday. Then Hey Jude. Then Honey Pie. Then Wild Honey Pie. Why don't we do it in the road? And would end with, health, with Helter Skelter. And then after a pause, my Her Majesty would be junk. Wow. Okay. I forgot about Heather. Interesting. Interesting, actually, that, you know, if you had your way, people would be referring to the zoological <laughs> section of Paul's White album. It would kind of work with that first Doll's House cover, wouldn't it? <laughs> It'd also just go right in with a smile if it ever would have come out. So, Craig, do you have your own running order? I really don't. I mean, obviously, back in the USSR would be the starting point, and... Um, I would be hard-pressed to find an, an ending better than Hey Jude, even though it's a slow song, but just it, just the power of that song um, and the year of the year 1968, I would um, have that be the ending song. You can just take the rest and just put them in a hat and throw them up like the sound effects in Benefit of Mr. Kite. So following up on what Alan said near the top of the show, sort of, you know, appraising Paul's White album and comparing it to John's. Each of you guys, do you prefer one to the other? I think um, Paul's is more accessible, uh, more commercial, more joyous. Uh, John's is heavier. It's, uh, you know, part one of Plastic Ono Band, but more pleasing and more all over the place by, by a long, long way. I think it's like just two beautiful things that are very, very dissimilar to me, and yet we're all populating the same thing that came out. How, how interesting. I think it, I can appreciate, as we went through it track by track, how much I really like Paul's White Album. I think it would stand, <laughs> if I did any other album where you could pull all of just his songs out, maybe this would be my favorite that he did. Well, given the era of 68, I think John's album would have um, gained a lot more notoriety. Paul's album probably would have sold a lot better. Um, it's definitely shades of what was to come a few years later on their um, their first two solo albums, both of them. Um, I, I, I mean, I think John's album overall I would be happier with, um, but probably as a kid, I probably would have liked the accessibility of, of Paul's over John's. So, you know, once again, they're, they're so... They're so married together that it's 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 hard to separate them. I mean, they. It makes me wonder how much Paul's triteness or his his cute melodies are are um, 
attributed to knowing that John is on the other side of the room working on um, happiness is a warm gun. I mean, it's like a, a good artist would say, well, we've got happiness as a warm gun sitting over there right now. Um, maybe we need a Martha, my dear, to, to round out this album. Um, who knows? But um, but I would give a nod to John's album as far as just the um, the, the, the overall creativity goes. And the, the, the art, the, the artistry goes to John, the, uh, the diversity and the craftsmanship goes to Paul. Yeah, I think that that's a, a pretty reasonable way of of um, comparing them. Um, I, I think one of the reasons that I said that I liked John's better, apart from the fact that there was so much more really strange stuff on John's. I mean, Wild Honey Pie is strange, but it's not as strange as Happiness is a Warm Gun, and Happiness is a Warm Gun is also a much better song. Um, and the same with why don't we do it in the road? I mean, some of the the strange things aren't strange enough, and the you know the beautiful things are great song by song. Uh, it's it's great stuff. Um, but one of the reasons I think I said I like John's better as well is that I had really a hard time sequencing this. I mean, apart from back in the USSR starting aside, I will ending aside birthday starting aside which you know basically is pretty similar to what they did and then helter skelter ending um I, I had a lot of trouble moving the stuff around in between you know in terms of what what comes well out of the previous song what the you know the key sequences things like that it, it just you know it, it didn't totally work ever no matter which um which sequence I used. So as an album, I think um, it doesn't hang together all that well. And yeah. I thought John's did. And that's a really good point because, uh, you know, we get back to like, if we had John's album, um, there's really no solid opener. So um, them knowing that they're playing off of each other, um, it's, it's a hard album to sequence, like Paul's in particular, and, and John's, because just the fact that, you know, they're, it's 50-50, and um, they're trading back and forth. It's almost like being at an art gallery and staring at, you know, you're staring at a painting that's very abstract, and then hanging next to it is like a perfectly formed portrait of a rainy day in Paris. You know, which one is better? And, and you know, it's really up to the listener and not the critic. I think Craig's um, idea of them needing each other is really kind of interesting because we've gotten to a point in their history where they're really not composing together anymore. Um, and it used to be that there was a degree to which Lennon and McCartney would balance each other out within a song. Uh, you know, We Can Work It Out was mentioned several times in this episode, and that's a perfect example. Um, and yet here, even when they're writing separately, they still need each other to balance mm -hmm. each other out and, and to play off each other and be sequenced together and um it's it, it's just kind of an interesting thing that you know we we think of lennon mccartney as one or the other or both but whichever way you cut it it kind of needs to be together and the right. white album shows that it doesn't it also have them though kind of going toe to toe i mean really kind of throwing their heaviest punches i don't know if they're at each other you know but uh it's a remarkable sort of display of their respective writing talents. 
Well, they're throwing punches at each other, and they're throwing punches at the Who, and they're throwing punches at the Beach Boys. It's sort of, you know, in a, in a way, it's sort of like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's throwing a different kind of punch. I, I, I meant it in the way of, um, you know, we can be better Beach Boys than the Beach Boys, and we can be a better Who than the Who. You know, it's sort of like they're challenged by everybody, and they're determined to show that what they can do is whatever it is that makes that group spectacular, but being the Beatles, they can do it just a little bit better. Well, and then continuing that theme, is it also John and Paul each saying, I can be a better Beatle than you? <laughs> well, isn't that, what, isn't that what made the Beatles great? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the sense of competitiveness and, and getting back to that previous point. I mean, this is why the White Album needs to be a double album. This is why if it was a single album and George Martin would add his way and, and take in the best of and turn it into, it just would have been another Beatles album. And we wouldn't have had, been able to have this broad discussion about them throwing Absolutely. punches at the Who and at each other and and all this and and you know not knowing that necessarily as a kid, but still just having this. I mean, just look at the White Album and don't not by listening to it, but just look at the titles and look at the songs and just go right down the list and look at the diversity and look at what it has to offer the of the totality of the album. It's it's stunning. It yeah. should have been a triple album. I said that the last time. I think they should have yeah. finished off all the other demos and uh, given George a greater slice of it. And I would have been, I, as I say, love this album and think that uh, it kind of shows that George Martin was starting to be out of touch with them to ever think that you could take this collection of fabulous stuff and right. whittle it down to 14 tracks. It's just crazy. But more than that, out of touch with the times. You know, uh, not necessarily out of touch with them, but out of touch with the times. I mean, listen to Smile and how fragmented that is in Good Vibrations. And the yeah. Beatles were, were just, you know, as, as much as they were leading, they were listening. So, um, you know, George Martin, I'm glad he didn't get his way. You know, no big surprise to people that I mostly prefer John's wide album to Paul's. I do. That, though, isn't dissing Paul's wide album. I actually think it's superb. It does have a few too many guilty pleasures. The fact that they're still pleasures brings it into the positive, but it is a kind of early clue to the new direction that we're going to be heading in. And, uh, you know, in that regard, it doesn't hold together as well for me. I think John's is much more cohesive and it just retains that edge all the way through including Bungalow Bill. It's still got some edge to it. But Richard, um, I have an interesting question for you. So, so you said... Okay, so let's just try to imagine for a second if, after the Beatles broke up, if they didn't go on to solo careers. Just imagine that if Paul didn't go on to do all these things, Mary Had a Little Lamb and all this stuff, and start to get into this, and John didn't go where he went. Now, would you still consider these to be guilty pleasures and as trite, or would you consider it to be the Beatles and it's a totality? And I know that's a hard question to answer, but... Um, how would you think of it and think of Paul's stuff? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Uh, it, as you say, it's hard to know, but if we didn't have the context of what came after and if he didn't right. go in that direction, you're absolutely right. I most likely, well, I wouldn't be saying that they're clues to the, the direction, right? They wouldn't be. Um, and so in that regard, it would remove that negative connotation without a doubt. Would I still, I mean, 
Would I then like Rocky Raccoon more? I doubt it. But uh, yeah, it, it certainly wouldn't be troubling to me, if you like. Right, right. I mean, because I separate Beetle Paul from Paul Paul, and I mean, I, I don't me look too. at it like an arc. I mean, to me, it's like I, the Beatles are, they're the Holy Grail, and then I I go on to their solo albums, which I tend to, you know, I like, but I tend not to visit nearly as much as I visit Beatle albums. Well, gentlemen, do you realize we've been yakking, we've been beetling for over two hours. It's flown by for me. Loved it. Well, that's the way that's we great. get when we all get in a room, isn't it? A, a room, he said, laughing. <laughs> <laughs> A room in a studio and a room in a room. From the heart of the black country. When I was a robber in Boston Place, you gathered round me with your fun embrace. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it Remember to let her into your heart Then you can start to make it better Hey Jude, don't be afraid You were made to go out and get her The minute you let her under your skin Don't 
The Beatles, Naked. House production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. Thank you.